I just had an interesting realization that the way we talk about baptism is so passive. I was baptized. You know, and not I entered into baptism or I baptized. <laughs> well, that's the act of, you know, baptizing someone, but like sure. a more active way of describing the commitment that I chose baptism. I chose exactly, I chose baptism. I I like I entered into baptism. Yeah. We don't talk about it that way. Yeah, that's true. Welcome back to Barefoot Tumais. This is Char. And this is Byron. Well, hope you're all doing well. We are coming to the close of our second semester at Princeton, which is exciting. Woo! And Byron, if I'm not mistaken, you want to reflect on one of our courses, is that right? Yeah. We, as, as you know, we kind of alternate topics or alternate who chooses the topic. Um, but today... Day, this is definitely one that I think is pretty mutual to both of us. Uh, we were both in a class on the Radical Reformation, which mm -hmm. focused mostly on Anabaptists and some radical Anabaptists. I think all the Anabaptists counted as radical. Uh, yeah, okay, but some more radical. Yes, there were there were some certainly going off the deep end, like the Munsterites. Munster, woo! We'll get there. Uh, but yeah, so. Partially because I think it's fun to stay current in what we're learning. Um, it would be fun to go over that topic. Yeah, as we look forward to this conversation, are there any tangible connections you want to make from what we're learning to other themes? Or is this just a chance to unpack some of the cool stuff we've learned? Uh, yeah, I think unpacking stuff. Obviously, you have connections to some of the Anabaptist leanings of like community of goods and sharing yeah. and sharing stuff, it might lead to what are a, a little bit of an indication of our personal theologies of baptism or the mm. Eucharist, for instance. Sure. Because I have essentially no strong feelings about either of those, which for a Christian is a little odd. Hmm. Um, yeah, given that people died for those concepts, died over their kind of small differences in beliefs about those content concepts yeah obviously it's more than that but yeah so that's that's what that's what i wanted to talk about i mean the way that i see it fundamentally so let's let's do a brief little breakdown 1517 martin luther nails the 99 decrees to the church of the cap the door of the catholic church yeah yeah and this is the start. I mean, the door of the Catholic The door. It's, yes, there was one Catholic church, and this was the door that they had. Yeah, no, he didn't go to Rome. He was in, was it Gutenberg? He was in somewhere in, in mid-central Germany-ish. And, yeah, nailed kind of an essay that he had written with 95 little arguments. And if you've ever read that, we really should have read that for class. Oh, yeah. We for focused Rome. all on the Anabaptists. We didn't look at the more neutral or uh, mainstream Protestant movement. Yeah, but the, the 95 theses were... 95? Yeah. Oh, I said nine, I thought it said thought it was 99. No. Might be. The 95 theses. It was basically just his beef with the Catholic Church. He's like, you're doing it all wrong. But a lot like of indulgences them, well, and... Yeah, but a lot of it was just very minute, nitpicky things about papal power. 
Um, but yeah, he was very critical of, of the papacy specifically and also indulgences. So yeah, that's, that's the context, 1517. And then... An explosion of thought. Because if you think about a major opportune moment where a critical shift is happening, where Luther breaks from the Catholic Church and says, we're not doing this anyway anymore. Tons of people are interested in what this guy has to say, both from an oppositional lens, because that's also a way that you can look at fascination, yeah. um, and from an intrigue of maybe this guy has the truth. You know, yeah. let's, let's, interest, let's be interested in what he has to say. Well, Martin Luther also didn't come up in a vacuum, right? Like, he wasn't the only one to be having some of these ideas. Oh, yeah. When it, whenever the figurehead pops up in history, rarely, if ever, do they have a singular vision that they come up with. You know, they, it's, it's part of a greater shift that's happening. Yeah. And as all of this energy is bubbling up, you have the start of the Reformation. It wasn't just mainline Protestants. It wasn't just the Lutherans. We have people who, inspired by Luther, inspired by Calvin around the same time, um, took things in... Calvin was a little later. I don't remember when Calvin was, but he wasn't super relevant to any Anabaptist stuff. I thought he was a contemporary... No, not necessarily to Anabaptism, but he was a contemporary of Luther. Yeah, I, did, I just don't know. We didn't cover him in class at all. Yeah. In any case, a lot of who we would today consider to be some pretty dramatic figureheads of, of the Protestant church were inspiring new thought, were writing, positing new theology, and others took it in more extreme directions, like the Anabaptists. So we have Balthazar, Hubmeier, um, Hoffman. There are a few key people right at the beginning who were like, we're not going to... Meyer. There was a guy named Meyer. Well, Zwingli. Zwingli was really important, well, too. Well, Zwingli was this weird, like, midpoint between Luther and the Anabaptists. So Zwingli actually is pretty important. So in the city of Zurich, in Switzerland, Switzerland tended to be really progressive and pretty liberal. They were a little bit distant from the power of the Catholic Church. And so they had all of these like free market cities, and Germany had some of these as well, where there were guilds and capitalism was starting to become a thing because of banking and mercantile stuff. Um, and so, yeah, there was... I guess th this is actually, I think it's important to note, this is where the, the class actually started with our professor, Dr. Appold, talking about the experience of the German peasants. So this was just a couple of generations or a couple of decades even after the Black Death or a, a huge kind of plague. Maybe if yeah, not yeah. that one, it was, it was some the, big It was plague. the bubonic plague. And so because of this, lords of the land were changing. They had lost out more than the peasants, right? The peasants kind of subsist year to year. And the lords are the ones who are trying to hoard this wealth and stuff. And so the bubonic plague actually hit them much harder and so they started compensating by implementing harsher and harsher like economic policies and practices around freedom and all sorts of stuff. So when economics start, started to take off from the, the role of like merchants and uh, what's the right word, the material, the people who would make things. Um, artisans. Artisans. Um, it kind of started what could become this sort of middle class. Yeah. And it the bourgeoisie. Was, yeah, and it was some of these people 
who their grandparents might have been middle like middle ages peasants. They would have been. They would have been, yeah. And so Martin Luther's grandparents, I think, were peasants. Plenty of the Anabaptists, uh, their grandparents or great grandparents were peasants. And so there was this this classism and this distinction that was happening around this same time. Yeah. And this boom in literacy as well. Yeah, the rise of capitalism in some ways gave access for some peasants to make strides beyond their their current circumstances. Mm -hmm. But it also comes in tandem with even stronger or I would say maybe perhaps more nuanced economic suppression to where the duality of the nobility and the peasants was no longer as clear with this sort of middle ground, mm. the bourgeoisie who, who played this role of, in some ways, insulating the nobility from the peasants. Yeah. Which yeah, yeah would be a little interesting to impact, but that's not quite where the Anabaptist focus. That's just something that Dr. Apple was bringing up in terms of like the context of this time. Well, another interesting context is, of course, the Catholic Church, and I hadn't realized that priests consisted of an entire other class of society. Yeah. That they, in many ways, were equivalent to and parallel to the nobility. That tithes were closer to taxes than what we would think of them today. And that they were these external rulers who often did have descendants or kids, um, did own property, uh, they had defensive systems as well, that the priests and I guess abbeys to some extent, abbeys and nunneries and mm -hmm. stuff, that they had this weird distinction from and yet power over the peasants as well. So while most of the people, almost all the people I suppose, were religious... In, a, in somewhat of a superstitious way, like... Yeah, that was know, a fun lecture. <laughs> it is, it's interesting to think about how, when we talk about the church today, how many people are actually strongly educated on what they believe mm, yeah. and what the Christian church stands for. Very few, percentage-wise. Yeah. You know, and if you're in a wealthier nation with a greater literacy rate and education rate, this will be, you know, less indicative of the entire church. But so many people who were born and raised culturally in the church profess, you know, the creed and mm -hmm. don't really know what they're saying don't really know the main context of, of their beliefs. And this was pretty similar to the peasants at this time, too, that yeah. there was a lot of superstition. There was a lot of spirituality that was um, not professedly Christian by nature. Mm -hmm. And I think in some ways it was dismissed or even utilized by the Catholic Church as far as maintaining the religious structure. Yeah, well, the... That probably is where a lot of the accrual of tradition came from, mm -hmm. right? Just years and years and centuries and centuries, a millennia and a half, or I guess one millennia since the church probably started, the Catholic church started in about 500 or so. A thousand years of... You mean formally? No, sorry, wait. Yeah, but then they split. So the church, universal, like the Orthodox church was founded maybe 400, 500 is a good average number and then the schism 
between Catholics and Orthodox was about 1,000, and then the Reformation was in 500, so, you know, now we're due for the next one, every 500 years or so. But, yeah, so 500 years and even more of that culturally, the Church had been percolating up all of these traditions, which also weren't, quote-unquote, Christian. They only were Christian because the only Church that existed in that part of the world codified them as such. But the Anabaptists, they wanted a reformation. They, they wanted to like get rid of so much of that stuff. The increase in literacy, right? People were like, why are we doing all of this tradition stuff? Why all this iconography? Why, why all these things? And they just wanted to go back to, you know, infant baptism, for instance, isn't in the Bible. So they wanted to do away with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we have, let's talk more about the peasants here, because this is an important turning point. Yeah. Um, there was, after the bubonic plague, the nobility who wielded both political and economic power over the peasants. So this notion of tithing was in part about paying for protection, mm-hmm. where the peasants would pay this fee so that the nobility who were themselves either trained in arms or they had soldiers underneath them yeah. who could come to the defense of the peasants if anyone raided them. The Swabian League. <laughs> and so the peasants were essentially coerced into making these payments and yeah. the tithes went straight to the nobility. They didn't go through the church, which was an issue that the peasants expressed. Like, if we're putting money into the church, why is, the, why is it not... Um, being, like, benefiting our community here. Yeah, the, well, weren't there two things? There were taxes, and then there were tithes. They were used very similarly, but... Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm just pushing back, because it sounds like you're conflating a yeah. little bit too much. Yes, yeah. Um, the tithes still went to the nobility, though. That it, it was not being distributed through the church back to the community. Even the priests... Yeah were selected by the nobility and not selected by the peasants. They were had... they selected by the nobility or the church? Like the, the church in Rome? Because I don't remember precisely. Well, they certainly weren't selected by the peasants. Yeah, the peasants was... did not have say over who was their religious clergy. That was one of their biggest demands, which I thought was a little interesting. I was like, really? It's, it's interesting that this is demand number one on the 12 articles of, of like the German peasant war. Yeah. Like, number one was we want to be able to choose our own priests. I mean, it makes sense if you want to have someone who represents you spiritually, yeah. politically, you know, economically. There have been other movements, too, where people demand representatives to be of their community. I'm even thinking mm-hmm. of the police. Like, one aspect of reform that people often talk about is let's have cops look like our community. Yeah. So, yeah. there is some aspect that people recognize their voice being stripped from them Mm -hmm. when those who are supposed to represent or lead them do not actually come from within their community. Yes. Yeah. So that was certainly a big pushback that they had. Um, They also, the nobility continued to encroach on their land, and so that was another one of their demands in the 12 demands. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, there was an interesting shift of the peasants appealing for their rights based on uh, like 
what they had historically typically been allowed to do. Mm-hmm. Their, I don't remember what the word was, their like ancient rights or ancient heritage or something, uh, just based on history, to using spiritual language as some way of establishing God-given and inalienable rights, which was a fascinating shift in ideology or at least rhetoric. Yeah. In any case, they, you know, push comes to shove and collectively many of the peasants lifted forward their voice here that these 12 articles were their demands that they wanted to see change, that as the they were having their rights reduced, their finances and land encroached on. Even marriage. Yeah, restrictions in who they could marry. Because if, if one was a bond servant, or what was the term that we used in class? Surf. A serf, yeah. If someone was a serf, they were technically the property of their lord. Essentially, yeah. And so oftentimes, though, they would inherit the land after their uh, lord passed away. Is that right? Or was it after a certain amount of time? Or they, There was some I aspect of inheritance. About that. I think with I think the land got to stay under the care of the peasants, and it was the produce of the land that then got to the lords or something. Because, yes, I think... Because if, if, a, if a peasant married... A, like, if a guy peasant married a lady peasant from another area, then their kids would get both of that land, or the the other lord would get the land of the children of the daughter of the peasant or something. And for that reason, they made restrictions on who could marry because of greed. I guess it's probably the simplest way to... Yeah. (laughs) Boil down that. Yeah, it was a difficult concept to wrap our heads around. Luckily, someone in class was able to draw a picture, but... Podcasts don't have pictures, so you're out of luck. Yeah. I mean, take this all with a grain of salt. This is us attempting to regurgitate what we've learned over the last semester. It was a lot of content, firehose um, history, which is something that I find a little more difficult to grasp and, and hold on to all the details, because there's often so much new nuance in history. Yeah, well, that's a good question as to, not, as to whether or not history like works as systems, like biology. I, I tend to like thinking about history as cause and effect and and big open interrelated things rather than a line of events that's much harder for me to remember yeah so so anabaptists well yeah so the peasants push back they uh eventually because they're not getting their demands met proclaim that they will go to war yeah now when we say war uh this was a glorified battle it wasn't a war in which all these peasants like 6,000 who came to battle were all slaughtered by the soldiers of the nobility and I think the Catholic Church also yeah brought in people yeah I mean definitely at Munster it was it was nobility plus the Catholic Church against the people yeah and so just brutalized and for any of you Lutherans out there people with respect for Martin Luther um, he had some pretty harsh words to say to the peasants. Yeah, he wrote something called Against the Thieving Hordes of Peasants, in which he said uh, to kill them like mad dogs. And his argument to the peasants was essentially, don't be greedy, don't covet what's not yours. It's unchristian to fight in this way. And uh, 
your riches are in heaven. You know, it's like, <laughs> have this heavenly focus, which that rhetoric has continued in our church today to those who are poor, that um, yeah. they are told, you know, don't focus on the riches of this world and, you know, focus on heaven, which I would say generally is valuable spiritual <laughs> wisdom. Yes. Now, the context in which it's applied here is one of exploitation in which it's told continue to conform to this corrupt system yeah. while the nobility don't have to follow the same rules. Yeah. That their rules are hoard your wealth, you know, enjoy your fame and fortune. <laughs> the status quo for the sake of structure. Yeah. And, and peace. So, there were Anabaptists who were influential. And, oh, I want to say. Go ahead. It's, I didn't realize this until day one of class that it was Anabaptists, not, not anti Baptists. Anabaptist means rebaptize. So they were named after one of their predominant beliefs. This was not their singular belief, but it was pretty predominant in terms of their overall construction of how Christian spirituality should be outlived. Yeah. And essentially, they're saying a child doesn't have the choice to choose baptism. Baptism must be a choice that demonstrates one's public commitment to the faith and to Jesus. Believer's baptism. Believer, exactly, a believer's baptism. Not to be confused with the believer's baptism for those who dunk themselves in love for Justin Bieber. Idolatry. <laughs> Idolatry, I say. They believe in the, uh, the trinity of baby, 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 oh. <laughs> uh, well, so here's another thing about Anabaptism, is that it's technically not even an accurate name for what they would have believed or what they what they would have called themselves because they they would put infant baptism they would invalidate it say it's not actually a baptism at all yeah it's not like you're getting rebaptized you're getting baptized for the first time because that yeah. one didn't count yes so that's something about something else about the name anabaptists so the anabaptists were pushing back not just against the catholic church but also against the lutherans yeah and remind me their pushback against the lutherans was that they, they weren't going hard enough? That's what it seemed like. So, I was trying... I, we didn't spend a lot of time on Luther mm -hmm. and, and some of those ideas. Um, what did Lutherans believe that Anabaptists didn't think went far enough? I think it was the rebaptism. That Lutheran, Luther was pushing it back against a number of the traditions of the Catholic Church... But then certain Anabaptists were like, oh, it's not far enough. I think care for the poor was also a very important part. Like the Anabaptists, the early Anabaptists, certainly sided with the peasants. That was one big difference between Zwingli and, you know, Hoffman, Hubmeier, some of these other names. Jan Natius. Well, he, he was a he little was, later, right? He was a direct descendant of, not biologically, but in terms <laughs> of teaching from Hoffman. Yeah. Uh, they supported the peasants' revolt. They, they were in favor of they were... a justice for the peasants. And, yeah. even, you know, we'll talk in a little bit about the Hutterites and their practice of community of goods, but it wasn't just the Hutterites. From the very beginning, the Anabaptists practiced this model of community of goods. Yeah. Here's the thing, that Luther was like, oh, it's all by faith. Mm -hmm. Say you are saved by by grace through faith or whatever, mm -hmm. and the Anabaptists 
were like, works are important, yo. Yeah, faith without works is dead. Yeah, so they, you know, they tried to hold a middle line between... So in this way, they weren't more radical. They were trying to hold a middle line between Lutherans and Catholics as far as they saw it on that one on that one thing. But also, I don't know if it's fair to say they were in support of the peasants' revolt. They were probably in support of the peasants, but another pretty almost ubiquitous um, aspect of Anabaptist theology was nonviolence, for the most part. Yeah, I would say the majority of Anabaptists would hold to a nonviolence, but there was a debate within the Anabaptist community of uh, do we hold the sword or do we hold the, the staff? Yeah. You know, do we fight or do we flee? And there were plenty of Anabaptists who sided with the sword. And I remember the uh, peasants, as I remember Dr. Apple talking about the peasants on the hill, like right before this bloody battle. Yeah. And there was an Anabaptist preacher who was speaking to them about like the glory of their action, like encouraging them in that dim day. Yeah. So at least some Anabaptists certainly sided, not just with the peasants, but with their <laughs> resistance. Yeah. So the German Peasants' War was 1525. Yes. Early Anabaptist thought, I think, started to matriculate in 1521, but 1527 was a noteworthy point where a lot of this kind of culminated. Yeah, the first people actually did public rebaptisms. Was, was that in 1521, or was that... I thought that was 1527 or 27. Okay. But yeah, Blaurach and, and Blaurach, those guys. Yeah. Um, Blue Cloak <laughs> was, was what his name means. Uh, yeah, there were a couple guys who got together. They were part of just like reading groups, so literacy was on the rise. It's kind of like a contextual Bible study. Yeah. Uh, well, that's another weird thing about Anabaptism, that I, at the end of all of this... I don't know what to make of it, is that a lot of them were making some pretty bold claims off of not a lot of education. Not all of them could read Greek, not all of them could read Hebrew, and that's not the only issue, just kind of theological education and stuff. So that brings up an interesting theological question of, is what is necessary to know about the Christian faith evident from just the Bible, sola scriptura? We should have hit it on that last week. <laughs> How so? With our knowledge and oh. wisdom, what is enough? What what do we need to know? Yeah, maybe. Also, how much do we need to know before we can learn what we need to know? <laughs> mm. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, there was one. There was only one Anabaptist theologian who was formally educated, who had a degree, doctorate in, in theology. Mm, one major one in that circle at the beginning. Bernard Waltman also had somewhat of an education but most of them were like civil engineer or uh shoemakers, shoemakers. Yeah. yeah coming from all sorts of other places that or fabric workers or something yeah so anyway there was this group uh trying to do a bible study thing and they got real excited about some stuff one day and all baptized each other in one of their mother-in-law's houses it was peter's mother-in-law right <laughs> you're funny um there was also something to do with sausage, like they, they ate sausage during Lent. Yeah, which was one of those rules and traditions that was considered, I don't know, blasphemous? Uh, just some... against the tradition, I think. You were not supposed to eat meat during Lent. So they... They publicly demonstrated. Broke a bunch of rules. Yeah, a, a lot of freedom in Christ, I think, would be one of the ways to take that absolution from traditions, from these practices that yeah. are essentially superstitious at this point. That was one of the Anabaptist main critiques uh -huh. of so much of what 
the Catholic Church stood for is you've taken these holy sacraments and you've made them superstitions. You have stripped them from their spiritual significance. Yeah. And they used all sorts of really strong language back and forth to each other. Yeah. Yeah. So in a couple cities, there were, and this was now, was this still in Zurich? Yes. Okay. And at this point, there were a, cu a couple of public disputations, people trying to defend one way or another, baptism or the meaning of the Eucharist or something like that. And it started to get really, really heated. And at some point, it just became illegal to, or I think it was always illegal, to do any of these things. Such as adult baptism. Such as adult baptism. And uh, that was an interesting one. See, you, you can personally... There was a big discussion about why baptism. Mm -hmm. Well, because it's a public thing. You know, if you have a personal theology of the Eucharist, that's an internal thing. That if I'm taking the Eucharist and I believe it's symbolic and not transubstantiative, and if you are taking it and you think that the body of Christ is present... The literal body. Yeah, then we're both eating a piece of bread, you know, from an external observer. Piece of bread? <laughs> from an external observer thing, we're eating something that looks like bread and drinking something that looks like wine. And so baptism, I think, became really symbolic of this thing because it was a physical manifestation yeah. of your expressed belief. Yeah, because to be rebaptized or to be baptized as an adult was was illegal. It was a, and it because it was a direct refutation of the power of the Catholic Church yeah. and their capacity to do sacraments and stuff. So anyway, people started getting arrested. People started getting at some point, martyred, like thrown in lakes and chucked up and stuff. Um, yeah, because the Anabaptist movement really took off. There, It was mm -hmm. a s sincere threat to the power of the Holy Roman Empire, by which I mean the Catholic Church's dominion over much of Europe at that time. And so they wanted to squash it, yeah. and they would capture or attempt to capture leaders of the Anabaptist movement, have them... Uh, give up their brothers and sisters in the faith, yeah. and then to publicly renounce their faith. And if they didn't do this, they would be tortured and killed. And of course, for them, that felt even more of a validation of their of the rightness of their belief. Exactly. We're being which... persecuted for our faith. Blessed oh. are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, which has been so abused. And <clears throat> to me, when I see those street preachers, bullhorn guys, mm -hmm. you know, saying, uh, repent the fire and brimstone, you're going to hell... I see that as emblematic of that same idea in a way that I think is malignant to its yeah. intention. Yeah, because they're getting a lot of pushback. And then they're like, yes, we're getting pushback. That means we're doing the right thing. It's exactly. like, no, pushback doesn't mean you're doing the right thing. Yeah. Persecution you know, does not equal righteousness. Exactly. There was a Catholic writer, or maybe a Lutheran writer, who said, like, damn, like, how terrible is it that these people are dying for nothing? Like, how, how demon-possessed must they be? He was using, again, really strong language. And that's that's a tough question about martyrdom in general. We spent the last class period talking about martyrology and, and martyrdom a lot because the Anabaptists, because they were so opposed, have a really rich, intense tradition of martyrology. But yeah, I mean, if, you, if you're dying for something, what other, like you, I don't know. You have to believe that what you stand for is greater than your life. Absolutely. That's tough. Typically, from a spiritual context, and I think this is, for me, why it makes sense that most martyrs have been of some kind of faith tradition or spirituality. Mm -hmm. 
you have to believe that there is some greater value or reward that in your commitment and fidelity to your belief through persecution will offer. That by being faithful to the end, you have embodied or earned some kind of reward. Yeah, that you might even be saved because of your sacrifice. Yeah, sure. Or that your righteousness in its some, in some way has redeeming value following this life. Yeah. So, go figure. Martyrdom is actually a pretty powerful tool, so killing people doesn't always shut a thing down. In fact, it can make it bigger. So yeah, then I'm, I'm a little confused as to what the next major like transition in Anabaptist ideology was. Does it then move on to some of the like spiritualists and Hutterites and... Yeah, so the Anabaptist sort of mainline subset denomination became known as the Swiss Brethren because of their location in um, Switzerland. And there were some subsets that pushed back against their some of their stances. Now, all Anabaptists were, of course, persecuted. One of the angles of their persecution was their practice of the community of goods. That this was seen as basing the faith in, in works, in acts, instead of in, mm-hmm. in grace and faith. Yeah. And it was seen as coercive and ungodly. I think this kind of anti-communist animosity has existed <laughs> even before communism as a an economic philosophy yeah, existed. Yeah, pre-Marx, pre, pre any kind of, you know, authoritarian communist government system, yeah. the practice was something that has always threatened power <laughs> and therefore has always garnered animosity. Mm-hmm. And so the Catholic Church, which has a ton of wealth and did then too, was pushing back against it. The Lutherans, who in some ways still had some kind of, maybe they had... I'm just shooting in the dark here, but I, they feel more traditionalist too, that they, they had some probably institutional power that they started to set up more than the Anabaptists. Did they gain any foothold? Well, ironically, it was not that hard to convert from Catholicism to Lutheranism. Initially, Luther didn't change that much, in, even in terms of the structure, like bishops and stuff. So even so, I'm thinking a, a little bit ahead in like 1535, Munster, uh, Franz Waldeck, the Prince Bishop, which is what an odd title, this guy who was essentially Bishop Nobility, he was on his way to Lutheranizing the city of Munster anyway. And it just went a little faster than he would have liked, I think. But he was going to do it anyway. And he ended up doing it once he got the city back. So it wasn't that hard to transition from Catholicism to Lutheranism in terms of liturgical structure, in terms of ecclesial structure, lots of, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so both from the Catholic Church and from the Lutherans, there was this uh, targeted critique of the practice of community of goods. And the Anabaptists, so the Swiss Brethren, were like, hold on, hold on, hold on. We're not doing this whole community of goods thing. Don't associate us with that concept. Rather, 
oh. we're going to ground ourselves in scripture that talks about the need to care for the poor and we'll stand by that but don't peg us on this community of goods thing so they kind of pulled back a little bit from the firm commitment to the to a practice mm-hmm. whereas the hutterites who were named after Jacob hutter um were very insistent on this practice of the community of goods being fundamental to their faith. Yeah. How can you, I think it's first John, I want to say four something that talks about like, or no, no, this is in chapter three. How, how can you hold, um, having worldly possessions, look at a brother and sister in need and not care for them, not, not give to them, mm. you know, the, this sense of, um, I think Luke talks about, if you have two, or Jesus and Luke, if you have two tunics, give one to the one who has need. There's a sense of full, equilateral, egalitarian practice in order to make sure that everyone's needs are met hmm. and start at that base point. And there's a lot of scriptural validation for that that we can talk about more on another episode. Yeah. Which I'm, you know, at some point we really need to do that. Yeah. Uh, but... In any case, they used all of this scriptural backing and the conviction of being a follower of Christ in the way that Jesus modeled his life and said, we have to do this. Mm -hmm. This is not an option. This is a necessity. And so they doubled down, and then there actually became a further rift in the Anabaptist church Mm -hmm. because of this. So the Swiss Brethren then became antagonistic to the Hutterites. (laughs) Yeah, so the Hutterites were triply. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And because of all that persecution, they actually fled. Now, a lot of Anabaptists did move around because of persecution, but the Hutterites in particular fled to Moravia, which was on the eastern border of the Holy Roman Empire. And they, the lords of that area, um, so like the, the nobility, the people in power there. Near current day Czechoslovakia. Yeah, the people in power there were really chill and were like, you can do you and we won't consign you to be drafted into the war or pay taxes or anything that you feel is uh, burdensome to you. Well, because the Hutterites actually were pretty productive. They were very productive and their economic production was was beneficial to the nobility. Yeah, They valued what they did. And so they're like, well, this works for us. We're not going to press you on these things that you consider necessary for you so they had some religious freedom there as, as a result of that and stayed in moravia for almost a hundred years hmm. until um there was war from both sides in which oh. they were kind of like squished in the middle oh, man. and then they ended up continuing their their journey of uh sojourning as essentially religious refugees but the Hutterites still exist. They still have practices of community goods today. There are some communities in Canada, in the United States. Yeah. Um, I think there are even some new ones popping up in Europe. There's, I mean, new, like 100 years ago new, sure. but like not 400 years ago new. Yeah. Well, the Moravians are also still around, I think, um, in, again, very small communities. But the first I had ever heard of the Moravian church was my dad was talking to me about, you know, he, he was saying, like, I don't, you know, outside of maybe Antiochian uh, or, or Syrian Orthodox, there's probably not a church out there that's closer to the original true church, uh, whatever that, whatever the term true church means that gets charged later. Yeah, um, I mean, that's such an interesting concept. If we can pause there for mm-hmm. a quick second. Does the church have to remain frozen in time for it to be considered the true church? No, 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 no. I don't, I don't think so at all. In fact, I think we can critique the aspects of orthodoxy that needed to be 
schismed away from, and then I think we can critique the aspects of Catholicism that needed to be reformed, and now I think we can critique the aspects of Protestantism that need to be formed or uh, clarified. Sure, but is, is that Reformation or formation necessarily pointing back to, uh, you know, zero AD context? In some of the ways that we've lost important aspects of that, yes. But I also think, right, the working of the Holy Spirit does not have to be trapped in what something looked like at that one time. Yeah, because spiritual context is different than historical context. Absolutely. And Absolutely. the early church still existed within their historical context, even if they lived a dramatically different way. Yeah. And so we can look to them. And I think in some ways, the way that they were distinguished from their surrounding community probably gives us the most insight into what should re- remain true to the church today i don't know about that there i I hear you that's really really valuable that level of integrity speaks to me very strongly but one of the essential things that it seemed it it was in their you know list of important beliefs was the ban this idea of of how i was talking the early church as in like the apostolic church in jerusalem no i'm I'm not saying that the hutterites or well there was also some stuff i mean i don't know it's in the bible like Annas and Sapphira just dropped dead because they... That is true. And like, Paul at one point does write about uh, kicking people out if they're leading people astray. Well, that was in a city church. That I, I don't know if all of the early churches... Practice a sort of ban exactly. of... Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I think that you are very conscious of that, particularly as someone who wants to build something that is reminiscent of the, like, Acts 2 church. I'm just and nostalgic also... for the good old days. <laughs> Make church great again. <laughs> Seriously, we should make little caps. Yikes. Little red trucker caps. Yikes, yikes, yikes. Okay, but, yeah, I don't know. I I think that a church needs to be, yeah, really, really separate and also integrated in the world around it. And I think the Anabaptists tended to take that a little too far, but I don't know an alternative, really, how to keep a community internally coherent and, and consistent and have all of that, other than having pretty strict boundaries of what they called the ban, which is another word I guess would be excommunication. So that was an interesting aspect of Anabaptism that we can come back to as well. Oh, I was going to finish my comment about the Moravians that my dad, I heard, I first heard of them when my dad said they were the only like church or ex like community outside of the, um, indigenous Americans who walked the trail of tears in the U S when that happened. Um, and that's real intense. And I don't know much more about it than that. But Did they walk it in solidarity? Yeah, I think so. They were like... At the time? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Like... That's powerful. Yeah. So... Hmm. So there was some of that. Um, and the Moravian Church is Hutterite. I think so. Yeah. Because the, the church in Moravia was essentially established by the Hutterites. Um, not to say that there couldn't have been branches. Oh, yeah. If we look to the broader Moravian region, there probably were Catholic yeah. churches. I mean, it was still within the Roman, Holy Roman Catholic uh, Empire. Yeah. I mean, if they had gone much farther, they would have found Russian Orthodox as well. Um, Pretty good. All of these things coexisting. Imagine that. Ah! Um, yeah. So then what other kind of main branches of Anabaptism were there? There were... The Amish, the Mennonites. Mennonites. Yeah, they were big. There were a bunch of Dutch Anabaptists. 
Dutch bread, Dutch brethren. I don't remember. They were a little bit different in some ways. Um, I don't remember exactly what their theological convictions were that were different. Oh, uh, the Dutch brand tended to have some millennialist uh, ideas. That was pretty wild. And is that where the Munsterites got their ideas from? Yes. Yeah, so Melchior Hoffman uh, had a couple disciples, one of whom was Jan Matthias. Can we Jan... pause for a quick second to just celebrate what a cool name Melchior Hoffman is? <laughs> like... I want to name my kid Melchior. Melchior is a cool name. It's one of the names of uh, the three kings, if you believe that tradition. We three kings. We three kings. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. So why don't you talk a little bit about the Munstrate experiment? Sure. I'll make Jerusalem. that quick and then we can, and I think we've covered most of the history that we learned in class and then I'd be interested to like dive away with our personal takes, uh, takes on some of these things. So um, Munster is a city in uh, North west germany pretty close to holland uh the dutch areas the netherlands i never know which one of those three to call it but so yeah they had some ideas that they had done some tricky trick math in the bible they had looked at math magic math magic there's a there's a name for that uh we learned it in new testament usually that refers to the math magic that you can do with hebrew letters mm -hmm. like 666 equaling caesar um, Nero Caesar. Nero Caesar, yeah. Um, so they took uh, 33 years for the life of Christ plus 100 years for uh, the established establishment of the early church. And then they considered that the early church uh, ended after the apostles kind of died. And they these, these millennialists and like true church believers, so to speak, um, they thought like, oh, the real church hasn't been around. We've been exiled from the real church for 1,400 years. Um, and 1,400 came from 70 times 20. 70 years was the length of the Babylonian exile times 20 because that was just the convenient number that would get them to where they were. Honestly, I mean, they just said like, well, we must be, you know, 20 times worse than than the like disobedience of Israel in the Old Testament. Um, and that, so they thought that the world was ending in 1533. They thought that. Or they proclaimed that. I mean, how, how fully convinced the leaders were. I know there was a lot of manipulation that took place. Jan Matthias went, like, charging to his death against an army so much bigger than him. Yeah, because he believed that God he was on really his side. really thought Jesus was going to, like, be there. That was Easter. Angel arm armies coming through. Whew, all that stuff. And I think it was Melchior Hoffman who... Uh, so he went to Strasbourg thinking that that was the site of the New Jerusalem. That Christ would descend and all of that stuff. Um, he was imprisoned in Strasbourg about six months before Easter, and he was like, "It's okay. Jesus will break me out in six months, and we'll, you know, rule the world." <laughs> and uh, he died in prison ten years later. Probably a very disappointed old man. Yeah. And so some of his followers were like, "Uh, it's next year in Munster," <laughs> and I don't know how they flipped that that narrative. Um, to add a year and put another city on on this same idea. I don't know why, like, end of times things keep getting predicted. It's I mean, people a are desperate to effort. People are desperate to have some sense of purpose and meaning, and I think that uh, immediate eschatological mm. notion is something that resonates with people of the sense of we are the ones who will reach the end. Yeah, you know that. 
history may not have begun with us, but history will end with us. Like it, it's self-aggrandizing in a way, but it's yeah. also very... Which is what people do. Yeah, that's true. It's also very comforting in a way of like a lot of people, right? This is a consistent thing since, since Plato, right? Like Plato was put to death because he was quote-unquote corrupting the youth, right? So like from mm. thousands of years ago, people... Did he give like, them little, little putty that they could play with? You're hilarious. A little Plato. No, he was Plato. Plato. He was nope, 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 nope. We're not going there. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's fine. He was just asking questions and stuff. And so, you know, from thousands of years ago, people had this concern of like, oh, the the youths are not keeping our traditions, and we're gonna lose everything, and the world's gonna end. And it hasn't. And you know, so everyone always thinks that the world is gonna end. And yeah. you know, I just saw a post the other day that my my grandma posted of like. You know, why, when will common sense make a comeback? You know, I, I don't know. Anyway, just frustrating ideas of, like, the world's getting worse or yeah. it has to end here because this these are the end times. And I think it's foolishness and a lack of trust in ourselves and our children. And, you know, easy for me to say that as a 25-year-old. But I think common sense is such a manipulative rhetoric to be able to say you don't have common sense. Well, what is... Sure. Common sense. Common sense is agreeing with my perspectives because yeah. my perspectives are intuitively true yeah. and I can see it because I have common sense. Yeah. And so it's, it's essentially wielding power of saying you have to subscribe to my beliefs in order to have this basic sense of human cognition. Sure. I mean, it's, it's probably a logical fallacy. Um, among other things. Just mean. Just mean, yeah. Um... <laughs> doodly do so yeah anyway um bunch of people went to the city of munster and uh it had already been the stage had already been set for lutheranizing and some slightly more radicalization and so then in 1534 the anabaptists a bunch of anabaptists kind of took over the city and they gave they were pretty radical these were the violent anabaptists you know the the one guy jan matthias was like okay we'll kill everyone who doesn't convert today and two of his buddies, um, Bernard Kipling, or uh, sorry, Nipperdaling, and uh, Jan. Also, great name. Von Leiden. Nipperdaling. Yeah. Um, they were like, whoa, 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 let's give them a week. Uh, and so then a bunch of people left. Anyway, it got really weird. It lasted for about a year. A year. They tried to do the community of goods thing. Um, they burned all like records of property so that they couldn't. You know, that, that was a really practical way of getting rid of private property. They just burned all the ownership of it so that, you know, you have to share this. You have no proof or ownership of this idea. Eventually, they start... There were twice as many women in the town as men. Still don't know how that happened. Thrice, right? Uh, well, I mean, 5,500 women and 2,000 men. Okay. So almost three times. Yeah. Two and a half times. And so they instituted, not, not so they instituted polygamy, but they instituted polygamy anyway. Again, they were trying to reestablish, you know, Jesus didn't really come back, go figure. And so they went to Old Testament ideas of like, oh, this is the new Jerusalem and we are, we're getting ready to usher Jesus back. So they like predated themselves to a pre-Jesus kind of state in mm -hmm. some ways uh, and called themselves the, you know, the the descendants of the authority of David and the New Jerusalem and stuff. So in Old Testament times, of course, it was easier to justify polygamy. So they had a number of reasons why polygamy might have been a thing. Um, again, not a typical Anabaptist uh, stance. But yeah, a year and a half later, the uh, the city fell 
to the Catholic Prince Bishop guy and a bunch of the Lutherans who came in to try to like take the city back and they tortured the leaders to death and hung them in cages on the church for 50 years and uh, it ended poorly and then it, and then that whole thing became a like a stereotype or some sort of it's like a dog whistle yeah a big message of like don't let Anabaptists into your city or they'll do this yeah and of course that was so like untrue so it gave the yeah. Reformation a bad name to Catholics and it gave Anabaptists a bad name for pro other Protestants. So, anyway, interesting things. Byron, what would you say are some takeaways that you've had from this course? Like, wh what of this is relevant to you and your faith? Yeah, well, we had a really compelling argument, uh, a discussion about martyrdom and the meaning of martyrdom yeah, and whether or not wild. it's um, something that's desirable or, like, what, how we're supposed to think about it. That was pretty compelling. Um, honestly, the biggest takeaway to me is that I, and it's not that my beliefs about baptism and the Eucharist are unexamined, mm. but I just, I think that, <laughs> I, don't, I, mean, I hesitate to say this, I was working on my statement of faith the other day, I had one that I had written for 2020 and I just hadn't looked at it for a year, so I started updating it and I was like, wait, 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 I gotta record what the 2020 one was, and then I gotta figure out what the 2021 one was, um, that was a confusing way to put it. And I don't think I have anything about baptism or communion in in my statement of faith. I just don't hold either of them particularly highly, which is interesting because I'm about to be chrismated into the Orthodox Church, and they have a pretty high view of bap uh, of a um, of the Eucharist. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, I I wouldn't die for my concept of the Eucharist or baptism. <laughs> Not by a long shot, right? I think baptism is optional, can be done informally. I think it should be. I do believe in believer's baptism. Yeah. Um, if anything. But I wouldn't kill someone if they wanted to baptize a baby. Um, if you're a pastor, you wouldn't be like, hold on, hold on, hold on now. No, if I am a pastor, I would I would say, hold on, hold on, hold on now. Let's not, let's like think about this. I'd would rather not baptize your baby. But if they were insistent, we if want they... to have our baby baptized. Would you be like, got to do it somewhere else, or I'll baptize your baby? Uh, yeah, that's so hard. I don't know what the Presbyterian Church does. I think the Presbyterian Church baptizes babies. Yeah. Um, I was baptized when I was like 14 or something um, by my mom. I thought it was by my dad, but she mentioned a thing recently, and I was like, she did it. I was like, oh, I forgot that, or you forgot that, or something. That's so interesting. Um, but it was in Getty. I just had an interesting realization that the way we talk about baptism is so passive. I was baptized. You know, and not I entered into baptism, or... I baptized. <laughs> well, that's the act of, you know, baptizing someone, but, like, sure. a more active way of describing the commitment that... I chose baptism. I chose, exactly, I chose baptism. I, I like I entered into baptism. Yeah. We don't talk about it that way. Yeah, that's true. Kind of yeah. interesting. I mean, there's theological takes on, like, whether or not it washes away your sins. <laughs> um, well, like, it's the moment that washes away your sins through the power of Jesus. And I just think that's so convoluted and weird. I think it's important and beautiful that Jesus was baptized. Yeah. Um, I think that it's definitely a sacrament, as in a, a, a place or a mystery, as the Orthodox Church would put it, a place to encounter God. Absolutely. But I don't believe in just seven sacraments. And I don't think the Orthodox Church does either. 
um, Protestants only believe, or uh, Presbyterians only believe in two sacraments. Um, and even then, right, like marriage is considered a sacrament, but it's not mandatory. It's not mandatory, exactly. Um, yeah. And then why the distinction between First Communion and other communions? Uh, like, I don't know. So when, what's the difference between baptism and confession? Like, some of these things I just don't know. I haven't learned enough about. Well, that's all Catholic, right? Uh, it carries over into various traditions, pre-Catholic and post-Catholic. So yeah, that's, I mean, that's baptism. The Eucharist, uh, I tend to believe that it's a symbolic thing. I like the idea that it unif- that when you enter into it, if you enter into it, um, that it's a moment of unification of the church across time and space, but I don't think that the body and blood of Christ is physically, literally present yeah. in the elements. Um, you know, I think you could do communion with coconut bag of chips if you want. Uh, there's a really cool story about some persecuted Christians in uh, Ser- not Serbia, um, Siberia, who they were they were like exiled to gulags or something, mm-hmm. and they obviously couldn't do communion. And so the pastor uh, led the congregation in communion. And he picked up a handful of dirt, and he said, "From this dirt comes the bread, or come from comes the grain from which the bread comes." Um, and so this is the bread of life. And then he did the same thing with another handful of dirt and said, from this dirt comes the grapes, from which we make the wine, which is the blood of Christ. So, like, that's really cool to me. That the practice, the sacrament of the Eucharist is not restricted to those who have access to the elements. Yeah, yeah. It's not some magic superstition-y thing. Yeah. So that's one of my takeaways. Well, I, you know, I would say that the power of God can and does intercede anywhere, in particular yes. those places that are most removed from power, that are most void of earthly sovereignty. You know, kind of a, a contrast between the powers of this world mm. and the powers of God. Fascinating, yeah. Um, and we can unpack what I mean by that more in a little bit if you want, but... Um, no, I understand what you mean. I think that the reason why the Eucharist and baptism and any sacrament is valuable is because of the spiritual posture that you enter into it with. So I think that you can do communion with a Coke and chips, but if you treat it as something that's like, oh, I just need a Coke and chips, or I just need whatever, yeah, yeah, it, yeah. it's not going to be significant to you. You're not going to enter in with a spiritual posture in which you would experience the living Christ, you know, in which you would be professing his death and resurrection. Hmm. And so the power is lost there because you didn't enter into it. Like, to me, I've thought a lot about whether or not to be rebaptized or baptized because I was baptized as an infant. Ooh. This, I mean, this has been a real big deal for me, uh-huh. thinking about it spiritually, like, do I need to be baptized again? Did that one not count? Yeah, I mean, you declare your, your faith publicly every day. Well, I attempt to. Sure. And So if that's what, it, if that's what the point is, then, yeah, that's a great question. You know, and, and I was in Israel-Palestine last year, nearing two years ago yeah. now, and we went to the Jordan River, and people were getting baptized there, and everyone had the opportunity to get baptized if they chose so. And I thought about it a lot. Do I want to be baptized here in the Jordan River? 
that'd be a really cool thing in some ways. Mm. Yeah, I was baptized in Engedi, where David hid from Saul. Mm. And at the end of the day, what I decided was, if I were to do this baptism, I would be essentially communicating either that the first one didn't count, or I would be saying that the significance of baptism is not a singular act of that yeah public profession yeah some people are anabaptists in a way of like they'll they'll recommit to baptism like every couple of years or something yeah and i think there's something weird about that it's you know pun intended it's watering it down a little bit <laughs> <laughs> again you know there is something special about the idea of marriage being one and done like that this is a yeah. commitment that you're essentially assigning yourself to for the rest of your life hey the monsterites made uh, connections between baptism and marriage cool 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 you know but there are people who and no judgment from a moralistic standpoint who don't see marriage as all that important and don't treat their relational commitments as commitments mm-hmm. and again i don't want to say anything negative about them but i think if they get married, it doesn't mean as much to them as someone who gets married with the understanding that this is a interpersonal and spiritual covenant that they're entering into. Yeah. One that is ordained by their creator. Mm-hmm. Like, that's super powerful. And so if mm-hmm. you enter into that, that's transformative. You know, it's not going to be as transformative for someone who's like, well, we can get married, and if it's not Marina, we get a divorce, and then, you know. Yeah. So... To me, the important part isn't the elements. It's not the practice. It's the spirit with which you enter into it. Yeah. And I think that spirit, not that we are controlling the power of God, but it ushers us into a place in which the ever-present presence of God yeah. is something that we can encounter through the sacraments, through um, the ordinary miracles. Yes, absolutely. And, and let me be clear. When I say I don't have, like... Uh, that there are certain things I don't believe about baptism. That doesn't mean I don't care or don't think it's important. Yeah. So, yeah, for instance, like, uh, or, or the Eucharist. For instance, like, some churches have pretty strong rules about closed um, communion versus open communion. And I don't like the idea of closed communion completely, but I do think that if someone takes communion or is pursuing communion, that they should take it seriously. Whether or not they have the exact same theological beliefs behind it as I do, whether or not they are the same exact denomination as I am, isn't important to me, as long as they're approaching it seriously. And I think there's actually a verse in the Bible that says, like, don't take this flippantly. Yeah. Partially because I think one of their definitions of communion, and this is this is why I don't believe in transubstantiation, is because they did communion as a literal meal with the whole community. I mean, I think, you know, if you go to the original communion yeah. meal it, it was a meal it yes. was a passover meal yeah it wasn't you know a small set aside part of the meal that was like a cracker and a little cup of juice like it, it was the same thing as the rest of the meal yeah which is a cool christological comment mm-hmm. because to me part of what i heard from you is saying yeah it's not you know we don't find uh sacraments as things that are this like high elevated elite separate thing um especially in a worldly power sense but we find it in the midst of the mundane yeah you know that that yeah that the eucharist is not some separate holy 
spiritual flesh magical thing. That was one weird Anabaptist thought. People, um, certain people over-spiritualized the flesh of Christ um, as an attempt to get away from stuff about Mary or whatever. But yeah, that, the, that Eucharistically, the point of Christ and communion and of spirituality and all of these things is that it can be found and can be accessed in the most mundane, in the most integrated, in the most normal mm. of things. That Jesus' flesh wasn't different from our flesh. Yes, talking about the presence of Christ not being in the sacrament, the traditionalized and even, you know, superstitionized mm. practice of the little tiny wafer and little tiny communion cup, right? Yeah. But to be a part of the whole meal, this integrated spiritual practice. So Jesus is not just a snack. He's a full meal. <laughs> wow. But yeah, one final thought on that. I've been to open communion Catholic services. Oh. And I was a little uncomfortable with that idea that I would be partaking in communion with a priest who was blessing this bread and, and consecrating it so as to usher in the transubstantiation of, of the elements. Hmm. And so at first I didn't want to do it, but then not wanting to be or, or wanting to be in, integrated in the spiritual practice and, and included because the communion is really important to me. I entered into that practice trying to imagine this as the actual blood and actual body of Christ. That in as much as I could participate from a Catholic perspective, I tried to do that. Interesting. I'm not sure saying that everyone needs to do it that way, but sure. for me, what integrity looked like entering into the spiritual practice of Catholic communion meant to attempt to honor the way that they perceive the elements. Yeah, that has a lot of potency for ecumenical dialogue and even interfaith communication. I guess there's just a lot for us to learn. Yeah. I wanted to go live on an Amish farm for a year if they'd have me. Oh, I anticipated spending at least a month on a, with the Hutterite community. I think for me... A month? I think you should do like a full year for the like harvest season and all of those things. Wow. Well, I'm, I'm not so committed to that. Like, I, I don't want to model myself off of the Hutterite community. I just, I want to have a sense of their interpersonal experience and, you know, the sense of spiritual vitality of the community. Yeah, I still think even for that, you'd need two or three months. Sure. I'm not committed to the idea of a month. It's just... I think it's a great idea. Yeah. You know, I want to go... Yeah to be integrated into a culture, into something, especially if it's so distinct and different. I think that's incredibly valuable and something that the Anabaptists tended to do pretty well and continue to do pretty well. The two people who gave the last presentation in class were Mennonites. Yeah, that was awesome. They were so passionate and educated and, and stuff about it. And they're really cute together. They're so cute. They were married. Well, this episode was a lot more uh, History, facty, summary-based. But uh hope it was enjoyable. Yeah. Yeah, as we learn more about different religious branches of Christianity and other faiths even, I think it only allows us to go deeper within our own faith practice. Mm -hmm. The way that you've been wrestling with the purpose and seriousness of 
communion and of baptism and mm. the sacraments. I think that's really beautiful. That's an invitation that another faith practice has brought for you. So even if it feels mundane, we can still have curiosity and find richness there. Absolutely. And so with that, may you find wonder in the mundane, hope amidst the chaos, and comfort in the love that makes you, you. Go in peace. Thank you.